Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Have you ever felt like you've tried everything to heal from the pain of sexual abuse and yet nothing seems to really be helping? Well, one of the reasons why most people struggle to break free from the pain of past child abuse is because the techniques out there are positioned as a one-size-fits-all answer. What I want you to know is that there are actually three distinct phases on the path to recovery. And I'd love to share with you about these phases what issues you must resolve to move to the next phase, and what kinds of support you'll need in order to move forward as quickly and completely as possible. The road to recovery is much easier when you know what stage you're in and what to do next. So don't hesitate. Go to www.rachelgrantcoaching.com slash checklist and get your nine-page guide today. Now, on to our show. Welcome everyone to Beyond Surviving, the safe space for survivors of childhood sexual abuse to receive support, resources, and share their stories. Beyond Surviving is about freedom, healing, connection, and even laughter and fun. Most importantly, it's about letting go of the pain of abuse and finally moving on. I'm Rachel Grant, and for those of you who don't yet know me, I've been a sexual abuse recovery coach since 2007, and I'm the author of Beyond Surviving, The Final Stage of Recovery from Sexual Abuse. I work with survivors who are sick and tired of feeling broken and unfixable. You can learn more about me and the Beyond Surviving program at rachelgrantcoaching.com. Today, our wonderful guest is Adina Bank-Lees, and I'm really happy to have Adina here because uh, not only is she just an amazing woman and practitioner and uh, advocate for for survivors, but she's also a dear colleague and is uh, working with me in lots of fun endeavors. We may talk about that. We may not, but um, she's really going to be here today talking with us about covert emotional incest. This is such an important topic and something that 
um, sometimes goes under the radar, but is um, a very important form of abuse that um, people are dealing with out there. So we're going to talk about what that is and uh, how family dynamics, you know, really can generate this type of abuse and some some strategies or skills that can really help you move forward and out of this surviving and into really thriving. So Adina, welcome. I'm so glad you're here with us today. Thanks, Rachel. Great to be with you today. So glad we get an opportunity to do this. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. You know, one of the things that um, when we when we first connected was, and I started learning more about the work you do, um, you know, really learning about this concept of covert emotional incest. So um, maybe you can start out by, first of all, just telling us a little bit about yourself, maybe a little bit about your journey, um, and then really uh, define what covert emotional incest is for us. Okay, absolutely. Well... My journey. So one of the things that's really important in my journey is early on, say it was 1990 or 91, I had a uh, clinical supervisor. Uh, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and my specialty area is working with survivors and people who want to be thrivers who've experienced abuse. And he asked me, why did you get into the field in the first place? And my immediate reaction was, because I want to help people. And he looked me in the face and he said, I, I'll say something nicer than he said to me. He said, I don't believe you. Try again. Mm. And so I spent some time really thinking about that and reflecting on it and being in my own therapy, actually, um, which I've been on and off since I was 14 uh, around issues like this has been critical for my healing. And so all of this, looking at it, what I came up with, Rachel, was that the real reason I went into the field of social work, in particular the specialty area that I did was because I couldn't fix my own family. And I had tried from when I was a kid. I tried to fix my mother, my father individually and whatever was going on with them. I tried to fix their marriage. I tried to fix their marriage um, and make everybody happy. And it did not work. I wasn't successful. And so what I realized was that I was carrying this black hole inside me that I thought if I could fix other people, uh, if I could work with them and they could be happy and I could fix them, uh, that black hole would go away, would get Mm. filled up and then I would really be okay and I'd be okay with myself because I had this belief due to my experience of covert emotional incest that we'll be talking about, uh, the dynamic that gets set up uh, where my job is to be the substitute spouse of one or both of my parents to meet their emotional needs, and I want to say emotional sexual needs, again, we'll clarify that in a little bit, was that that set it up that, wow, I can't do that. I'm a failure. I can meet it sometimes, but I don't make them happy all the time, and I can't fix them. So there's something wrong with me, and there must be something wrong with me, and the only way to have relationship is to be there to fix and solve other people and their, you know, other people's problems. So quite a setup. And um, it was quite a revelation for me to realize that that's what was going on. And it made so much sense because what I found myself doing as a professional was I was getting really frustrated with people who weren't taking my suggestions, doing their homework assignments. They weren't getting, getting quote unquote, better as fast as, you know, they should get better. Mm -hmm. And uh, so all of that, what we call countertransference in the field, all of my reactions to the client's was so much steeped in my own 
issues and what had been going on for me. And that was such an epiphany and a clearing out. It was like, oh, my goodness, of course. So if I really still want to be in this field, I cannot be expecting anyone to change. I can't be expecting to fix anybody. This is not about me trying to fill my hole, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, can't, it can't be that. And so it was life-changing for me personally and definitely career-wise. And I, I practice uh, very, very different today. Uh, I, I am not an expert uh, when somebody walks in my office. Uh, I am a guide and I walk along with them. I know you do a lot of this with coaching. I think the thing that makes it different me as a psychotherapist is that um, I think we do more work around family of origin and some more intensity uh, kind of stuff that you wouldn't do in a coaching perspective. And we do some more history uh, things and more emotional release work. But in terms of, uh, I'm the doctor, you're the patient, I'm going to fix you, you're, you know, no, not at all. Nice. I know yeah. people, people are experts on, on themselves, and I have experience, life experience, I have professional experience, I have suggestions to make, I have, you know, uh, I can be a guide, but, and I can be a witness. I have to say that witnessing and mm-hmm. allowing people to just be who they are be in their feelings, allow them to say their truth, and being able to uh, stay present, breathe, stay present, feel your feelings. As I wrote in the Ride the Wave piece on the blog that I, uh, you were so generous to let me guest blog on, uh, such, a, such, a, such a critical piece for people to heal, yeah. and that's very different than fixing somebody. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Adina. Yeah, just to, to give us a little glimpse into your journey, um, certainly, and, and finding your way to, you know, where you are now and how in the midst of that, it sounds like you started to notice that as a result of the family you grew up in and the dynamics that were there, uh, that you had experienced a type of abuse that often um, I think people don't even know exists. Maybe you didn't even know it existed or have a name for it at the time when you were starting to sort it out. So, um Let's let's explore this a, a bit more for our listeners who maybe have never heard this term, covert emotional sexual incest. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely, and thank you. Yes, I had no idea what was going on. Um, so covert emotional incest. When a child is made as to be a substitute spouse or confidant for one or both of their parents, So, for example, for me, I heard things like, I can't talk to your mother like this. She she just doesn't understand Mm -hmm. me the way you do. I heard from my mother, you know what, I I, I can't talk to your father like this. He doesn't get it. He's, you know, I'm so frustrated. How can we get him to behave such and such a way? Oh, boy. And, you know, I feel so much better when I talk to you. you. How do you know so much? You're so young. So if anybody's listening and they've heard those kinds of things, whether as a kid or even still as an adult, and this is mm-hmm. really an important point, excuse me, because you can say, oh, it's so obvious that you wouldn't want an eight-year-old, you know, you wouldn't want your mother or father to talk to you like that as an eight-year-old. Pretty obvious that that's not okay. But, you know, all right, I'm 54 now, and I'm an adult, 
And so why can't my mother be my best friend and she can share all her stuff about my father and I can share my stuff about my spouse and why can't that be? That's two adults. And what I say, and this goes to the heart of the definition of covert emotional incest and why it's uh, abuse, um, is that that spousal role um, is a violation of the parent and child relationship and it's, a, and it's a sexual violation. So what am I talking about? Well, the parent-child relationship, the parent is supposed to be there to meet the child's needs. The child is not there to meet the parent's needs. That is the normal mm-hmm. developmental healthy setup. Right. Okay. In covert emotional incest, this gets flipped around, and the child ends up being there to meet the parent's needs. Mm-hmm. Why do we call it incest? Why do we call it sexual abuse? Because the spousal role is a sexual role, whether there's physical sex happening or not. It carries sexual energy. And it's, it's, it's not tangible. I can't put my fingers on it. But it's there and it's picked up by the child and it's confusing. Mm. And the child doesn't know what to make of it. And I can say to you as an adult that still can experience this at times in my uh, family of origin relationships, it still is confusing to me when it's happening with all I know about it and Mm -hmm. all I'm I'm writing about it and I'm teaching about it. But when it's actually happening, I go into this place of being this little kid and I get confused again. Yeah. And then I have to use my support, which I know you work with people on in your coaching, and this is what I do too. We can't be in a thriving mode without a support system. For sure. So I use my support. It's one of the things that I know, and I want to say to your listeners, like, numero uno, get, pe- you know, you get people who you can talk to, whether it be Rachel as your coach, somebody as a professional therapist. If you don't have friends right now or people who are also recovering and healing from this particular issue or other issues that you can speak to, but be able to have somebody say, wait a second, am I crazy? Is this real? What's, what's happening? I need a reality check. Can you just listen to me for a little bit? I just need somebody to hold the space for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's critical for that. So I'm going to come back. So spousal role, sexual role, whether there's physical sex happening or not, doesn't matter whether you're eight or you're 55. As the child, you're always in the daughter or son role. And your parent is always in the parent role. So it's not, it's not okay for the parent to be putting the child in that confidant or spousal position. Mm-hmm. And I want to, a, a kind of a caveat, which is, as we know that our parents are living longer, as we are. And I'm, and at 54, I'm in the sandwich generation. I have an aging mother, and I have an, a young adult son. So, when I'm having this aging mother, there are things that are happening where I sometimes have had to take over and make some decisions medically, et cetera. Right. That's a really tough place to be. People have to do that. Parents have dementia. They get really sick. You're a power of attorney. You have to make decisions for them. Maybe you have to pay bills for them. You're saying, wait a second, you know, uh, who's the parent and who's the child? Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. that's not what I'm talking about here. Okay. That, that, That's a horrendous role reversal. We are impacted by it. We need to get support for it. 
it's very important that you get support for that. More and more of us as we age will be in that role. Yeah. I'm yeah. talking I'm talking about when that does not have to happen and a parent is using this is using their child or adult child as their confidant instead of being able to go to their spouse and or a peer to get that emotional support. So, Adina, when, thank you for um, defining that for us and, and clarifying, you know, what it really looks like. And I think the distinction that you're making that this can occur whether you're, you know, an adolescent or an adult child is, is the same. The boundaries are, we want those boundaries to be healthy and the expectations and the roles to be defined. When you were when you were young and this was occurring in your life, you know what do you recall about how it felt in the moment? Um, I, I'm guessing I'm just curious about that because I my sense is that it might feel on one hand uh, like empowering or satisfying to be you know called upon in that way by your parent, um, and there might be like gratification or a feeling of being important. But then there's probably a flip side to that of, you know, negative consequences of being, you know, put in that position. Um, can you share with us a little bit about, you know, what you noticed and remember about maybe the what felt good or satisfying about it and then what felt, you know, hard or difficult? Of course. Yes, of course, of course. And you put it beautifully. So it is a double-edged sword. Um, the bigger the front, the bigger the back, as my dear friend Sonny used to say. So, yes, I felt special. I felt privileged, I felt chosen, I felt powerful. Um, wow, you know, they see me as so much more mature, and mm -hmm. wow, I can make them smile, and wow, I can make them feel better. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very sedu seductive. I'm using that word for a reason, because it is very seductive yeah. to be able to feel like you have that much power and that you can please your parent that much. Um, and the closeness that you feel with that parent, not knowing that that's not a healthy boundaried relationship. And this, the, the flip side of that is the powerlessness and helplessness that I felt when I couldn't fix them, when nothing really changed, mm -hmm. um, when I felt the torn loyalty, when I was asked to keep secrets and I felt, oh my God, I love my mom so much, but I love my dad too. Can I love them both at the same time? How do I have a relationship with them both at the same time? Are they going, one of them going to be mad at me if they find out I was talking to them about the other? So they're very confused and very, very torn. So yeah. I had a lot of anxiety as a kid. Um, and I know now that I could say I also uh, showed signs of depression. I was more of the anxious kind and very perfectionistic, thinking that if I just got everything perfect, it would be okay and I could breathe. Um, so I, I'd say that's, you know, yeah. stomach turning, stomach turning and um, insides shaking often. Yeah, yeah. I can only imagine, you know, it's uh, to be to be placed in that position and to to not be, you know to not know any better. How would you? You know, you're a child, so you're you know you're taking your cues from your parents or from your caregivers and basing your assumptions about how things are supposed to look or feel from that, and then to find yourself in such conflict. 
how did that um, affect you later in your life? You know, as an adult uh, in your relationships, what did you notice was, was hard or difficult as a result of having gone through that experience in childhood? Well, I think it has been and continues. I don't want to give any false hopes. Um, the fact that this is something that continues on. It doesn't go away. It, it gets better. Uh, so a continued challenge for me in intimate relationship is being able to take care of myself and mm-hmm. have the balance of caring for myself uh, as well as my partner rather than just giving myself up and just only taking care of and focusing on my partner, for example. Right, right. Um, and, you know, if if my partner is displeased with me because I'm saying, you know, well, I'd like to do this or I'm going to do that, uh, what my little girl inside hears uh, if my partner gets angry with that is, you see, you're not entitled to have what you want and what you need. You are only here to take care of this person. Mm-hmm. That, you know, there's a lot of healing that I've done, Rachel, and it is so much better. But that wound for me has never gone away. I handle it much better. It doesn't get triggered as often. There's much more time in my life I'm in thriving versus surviving. But I can get kicked into survival mode, uh, especially with my spouse, because that is the person. And I'm a believer of this. This is my philosophy and what I've been trained in couples work and attachments is just what I believe is that when we are with this intimate partner, our very worst nightmares are going to get triggered for each other. Mm-hmm. We're going we're gonna to be challenged to grow and we're going to be challenged to heal. And so this is an area that I know over time um, comes up for me. And it's another opportunity to do more healing, to take really good care of myself, and to find uh, a consistent balance of it's okay for me to take care of me and I want to be in relationship with someone else as well, but not yeah. give myself away. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I can see that. I think that's uh, something I can relate to as a survivor of sexual abuse. There's a lot of, of course, things we have in common. Um, Abuse leads to, uh, regardless of type, can lead to very common similar outcomes. And so, you know, I love that you're, you know, so generous with yourself in that space of uh, I'm constantly, you know, growing and achieving more and feeling better and uh, moving to, to greater and greater levels of being able to stay out of those, you know, survivor states, as you as you mentioned, but, you know, giving yourself grace in those moments where something does pop up. And it sounds like you have a really great um, toolkit for supporting yourself in those moments, as well as, you know, using outside support, as you talked about earlier. What would you say are some key skills that have really um, led to that thriving and not just surviving in your life? Um, I want to answer that, and I, um, if I could, I want to just put that on the side for just a second because I'm watching time. I know we're, we're coming close, but I want to add something else to the covert emotional incest definition that we didn't cover okay. that I think is really critical, if that's okay. Of course. Uh, okay. So it's um, the, being the substitute or surrogate spouse and confidant, very, very important. The other piece, for me was the objectification of my body, the, the, the keen focus on my body so that my body wasn't mine, it was somebody else's. Uh, 
And in this particular situation, it was my mother and my father's, and they had their different ways of owning my body in terms of their comments and direction and beliefs. And I just want to throw out one piece, which was, um, you know, the, the message I got was the only way for me to have worth was to look a certain way and that that certain way was going to be sexually attractive to a person of the opposite sex. And who defined what that mm-hmm. looked like was my father. Mm-hmm. And my father happened to like either very voluptuous, like a Sophia Loren, Marilyn Monroe type of body, or a very anorexically thin waif type of body. And so that's what I grew up as like, okay, so in order for me to have any worth, I have to look like this. Mm-hmm. And I have to expect that men are going to comment on my body and I have to like it and be flattered rather than feel violated and slimed by it. Wow, yeah. And that was really hard because I felt violated and slimed by it and I could never get to the part where I felt flattered by it. So I always felt like I wasn't doing that right either. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, there was a lot of tornness and conflict there. And so the piece about being objectified, sexual abuse, physical sexual abuse survivors know about this. You know, um, your body's not your own. You're, you're outside right. of your body because your body's not safe. We could go, I mean, I don't want to go on and on and on about that. But that's, this is a very important piece. Absolutely. Of, yeah, for, for sure. That. Yeah. 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 You know, these experiences, yeah, of course, they shape so much, so much of how we perceive ourselves and what we, are, you know, think uh, is to be expected and... Uh, what's normal or what's uh, appealing. Yeah, thank you for, for bringing that into the conversation. I think it is a really important point for for people who are listening to notice that a lot of times, you know, the the way we conceptualize ourselves um, or a variety of things is, is so informed by um, the preferences of the people who abused us. And I think a big part of that healing journey is separating that out and coming to really understand what is us and our own and what we like and what's for us and away from, you know, those um, imposed uh, perspectives or attitudes, kind of like that. Absolutely, absolutely. The last thing I'll say that I'll go to the, to the skills and the tools. Um, another piece that I'm seeing a lot with people that they're not um, aware of that this is abusive to them is right. the very um, highly charged sexual content that they're experiencing uh, in their families. And so I'm, I'm talking about things like um, parents watching pornography or reading pornography with kids um, happening, you know, on the Internet a lot uh, now and um, uh, being voyeured, worked with a client who was voyeured on a regular basis by her father Mm-hmm. And she knew that her two sisters had been physically molested by him. But what she said to me was, you know, he never touched me. So I wasn't sexually abused. I don't understand why I can't establish a healthy, intimate relationship. Right. You know, it doesn't, didn't mm-hmm. happen to me. And so I had to educate her about how she didn't have to be physically touched for That's it right. to have happened to her. Yeah. So I just want to, again, for your listeners, you know, I, I want people to hear that you don't have to be physically touched to have had that sexual boundary violation and to be abused in that way. The, the inappropriate sexual content is sexualizing and violating, et cetera, et cetera. So 
Yeah, if absolutely. I made that clear, we can. Yeah, we can. Yeah. We can go on to the, to the skills. I think it's, I just I think it's an important it thing to to say and say again because you know I see in my um in my Facebook group healing from sexual abuse that there are lots of questions like that. You know, well this uh, you know only this happened and it's not this thing. So why am I all messed right. up? You know, why am I struggling? And um, so it is right. important for people to know that you know you don't have to. Um, there's a spectrum. There's a spectrum of experience, and yes. it doesn't mean that one is worse than another. It's just that you know we we fall into this trap that you're just like you're naming. So it is good for us to reiterate that for people, so they can really understand that their experience, whatever their experience is, matters. It has an impact, and you can get healing around that, of course. Yes, yes. So there is a solution. There is healing. There is a way out. And that's one of the things I, I love about you is because that's what you're focused on. You know, you're focused on there is a solution. Um, so for me, uh, I think number one is to have a context and a name for what's happened and what's happening. That, for me, mm-hmm. my anxiety dropped so significantly when I was given this term CEI, covert emotional incest. I was like, oh, so somebody on your Facebook group gets an answer of like, oh, of course, this makes total sense you're experiencing this because you had blank. And right. I, I bet you they're like, like, oh, thank you, you know. Yes. <laughs> um, so that, that's a huge anxiety reducer right there and a validator so that I can be in my body enough. And this is big for your listeners. What we know neurobiologically now, and I know you know this, Rachel, is that I need to have my body at kind of a stable place in order to think and feel at the same time. Right. And that's when I can grow and do my healing because if I am in fear, I'm either fighting, I'm fleeing, or I'm frozen. So I'm either living in my head because my body's not safe and I'm cut off, or I'm so in my body and it's so activated that my left brain doesn't have enough blood flow in it and I can't make any rational decisions. Mm -hmm. I can't be healing there. So when you say skills, it's, okay, what are my self-soothing skills? How do I keep my body regulated? That's the nervous system regulation is the big therapy term now. So how do I do that? Well, I use something that doesn't cost anything, and I can take it anywhere I want, and it's called breathing. Right. So, <laughs> you know, it's a deep, deep and slow breathing. I breathe in for four through my nose. I hold it for two, and I breathe out through my nose for six. Other people, you know, yoga people do all kinds of things. This is just what I do. And this is what I, you know, do with my clients. The breathing in my nose gets me the cleanest breath, gets me the breath that goes to all areas of my brain to calm down my brain. If I breathe in through my mouth, that's fear breathing. That's that's telling my brain that there's danger. So I'll start hyperventilating. So I keep my mouth closed, which is a good thing for me anyway, Rachel, because you can tell I talk a lot. (laughs) If I could could keep my mouth shut for a few seconds, it's a good thing. Um, And so I breathe through my nose, I hold, and then I let go slowly, and everything Mm -hmm. starts to calm down. Mm -hmm. And it takes a while because my brain is very active, and it's okay for the listener. Our brains are active. That's what they're supposed to do. So I just go, just keep coming back to to counting. I'm in for four, hold for two, out for six. And when I'm calmer, then I can reach out for help. Or 
sometimes, I'll just say this morning, for example, um, I had something difficult emotionally happen, and I now my automatic is to pick up the phone and call somebody for support. It used mm-hmm. to be picking up a drink and picking up other things. Mm-hmm. That's not what I do now. I pick up the phone for support. So I did that, and my person on the other line, we breathed together. Nice. Yeah. And my body calmed down. And then we talked some, you know, and then, um, so tools, breathing, reaching out for help. Uh, I do this thing they call the butterfly hug. So I put my arms around me and my hands are just around, you know, on the sides, around my bra line. And I alternate my hands going back and forth slowly. I can take this anywhere again. I like portable yeah. tools. Right. <laughs> so too. I'm just doing, yeah, I don't have to buy anything. I could be in the airport. <laughs> you know, I travel a lot. It doesn't matter. And I'm just sitting, I was doing this with my family this week. Nobody knows what I'm doing. Yeah. And I'm just slowly doing that. And what I know is that it helps calm me down. And there is a neurobiological piece to this we don't have to go into, but it helps the left and the right brain speak to each other and calm. And that for me is the biggest that. piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Calm, calm, okay. calm. Ask for help. Reach out for help. And um, I think the last thing I'll say is the, uh, another piece for me that's been so helpful is the self-compassion piece. When I got it that there was this little kid at three and five and seven and ten and fifteen and and a young adult that went through this. And I could feel for that part of me um, rather than be, oh, come on. I used to say to myself, come on, you know, you should know better. And I just talk right. nasty to myself. But when I had my son, Rachel, and I could see this other human being who was so innocent and, excuse me, in no way, could have done anything different as an infant and at three and five and ten. That's right. And I went, oh my God, that was me. Right. That was me. Yeah. So so it's I'm parenting myself now. When these things happen, I, I visually see and I have pictures of myself as little around my house so that I could develop this relationship with these parts of me and parent them the way I always wanted to be parented. Mm-hmm. And this has taken time. So I, this didn't happen in five days. I mean, this right. is years now. Right. But what's happened is I do, I hold. I hold myself. I hold these parts. Honey, it's okay. You're safe. It's good. I talk to me and myself as I would have talked to my son. And that, Rachel, has That's been yeah. just yeah, just the icing on the cake. It's, it's something I'll have with me for the rest of my life. Um, and it's such a profound, internal caring and loving that I never thought I'd reach. And so I just want your people to know it's possible. Absolutely. Thank it's, you it's so really much for possible. that, Adina. That's so important. Yeah. Uh, I love so much of what you just shared there. First of all, that their strategies simple. They seem so simple, but they can have, they have such a huge impact, <laughs> an immediate impact, right, in being able to help yes. us recalibrate our system, ground, reconnect, and and being able to access that anywhere, anytime, any place is so important. And I also love the the reminder that you know we need people, we need allies, and in, in our lives. 
so whatever that looks like for you, you know, having a person or a forum or a place where you can go in those moments so that you're not isolating and trying to do it all on your own, uh, such a trap we survivors can fall into. So, you know, um, thank you for those reminders and that self-compassion piece. Oh, it's so huge, you know, and uh, to just remember and do our best to, to remember that we were little and we were not at choice about these things and we were doing the best we could with the resources okay. we had and and to offer tenderness to that those parts of ourselves and and that we can give you know we can heal those parts of ourselves by giving that tenderness and support that we didn't receive at the time now right now exactly exactly so great. Well, Adina, I'm so thankful to have had this time with you today. I, I love all the tips that you've given our listeners, and um, just thank you for being my guest. Uh, please share with us your uh, website and how people can get in touch with you. Fantastic. Thank you. So the website is Adina, A-D-E-N-A, bank, B-A-N-K, leave, L-E-E, as is in Sam, dot com. And um, on that uh, website, you'll see some videos. Um, I also have a YouTube channel. I made about an eight-minute video on covert emotional incest, so feel free to take a look at that. It gives you kind of snapshot of things. Um, and I've also, I'm, I'm penning a book right now. Uh, the working title is Maybe I'm Not Crazy After All. And it's <laughs> my, uh, it's... <laughs> We're writing it as an educational memoir, which means it's my story demonstrating and illustrating covert emotional incest, and it's infused with um, psychological theory, and so you have some terms and you get some explanation of things. Awesome. But mostly it's about it's self-contained stories in there about what is it, what happened, and what it's like now. And can people get on a, a wait list for that or a way to be notified when it's out? If they send me an email through my website, then they can definitely do that. Okay. And uh, we were hoping we we're hoping this summer, but it's going to be a little later than that. They can also go to my website and sign up for my e-letter. I do a monthly e-letter where it's information about abuse and related things, and I will definitely be sharing about my book on the e-letter. Okay. And the last thing I'll say is that I have written a small self-help booklet, I call it, and it's called The 12 Healing Steps for Adult Survivors of Childhood Sexual Abuse. And it's for anybody um, who is familiar with a 12-step program, because I have a lot of my clients who are uh, recovering addicts, and the 12-step program has been very helpful for them. And then in their recovery, they come upon trauma issues. And so if the 12-step framework has worked for them, this has been helpful to apply that to the sexual abuse recovery that they're looking at next. So if anybody, you know, might be interested in that, that's on the website. It's also available through Amazon and it's cheap. It's 10 bucks. So. Okay. All right. Wow. So many wonderful, wonderful resources. So folks, uh, please, please pop over to Adina's website um, and uh, check out all of those wonderful resources. And um, as always, thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in and listening today and joining us. And don't forget to visit rachelgrantcoaching.com as well to learn more about sexual abuse recovery coaching and check out the resources that are there. And please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and comment. And uh, we have so much more to share with you. So tune in again next time. And until then, take really good care of you. 
Adina, have a really wonderful rest of your day. Thank you again. Thank you, Rachel. Take good care. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.